Welcome to Talking Property, where you get the inside information into what's going on in the Australian and Asian property markets from leading property and investment experts. Welcome to Australian Property Journal's Talking Property Podcast. I'm Nelson Yap, editor of APJ. Okay, one second, start recording in three to one. Okay, it's orangey. All right, I'll, I'll, thank you very much. My guest today is Ben Martin-Henry, Head of Analytics Pacific at Real Capital Analytics. Welcome, Benjamin Martin-Henry, back to Australian Property Journal's Talking Property Podcast. Hi, Leo. So good, good to speak to you again. A lot has happened in the uh, months since our last uh, recording. Um, tell us about what's happening in the uh, capital market space. Yes, you're certainly right. A lot has happened in the uh, in the last couple of months since we last spoke. Um, a lot of it good, which is great. Um, I guess well, I'll start off with some Q3 numbers because they're always fun looking back at how we compare to, to 2020. I've had this issue all year where we're kind of comparing results to, you know, a black swan event or a once in a hundred year pandemic. So all these percentage changes sound quite astronomical uh, yes. when we compare to them. And it's the same thing for Q4. So volumes are up 70%. <laughs> On, um, yes. on Q3 last year, which kind of makes sense. Q3 was probably when we were smack bang in, in the midst of COVID here, and that's when there was a lot of investor kind of pull, pull back on, um, on making any big investment decisions. So it's not, it's not really surprising. But what I've started to do more and more of is actually look at pre-COVID averages, and by yeah. that I mean sort of 2015 to 2019, and just see how we compare to those, those periods. And um, we're up 8% on... Um, Q1 to Q3 pre-COVID averages. So there is an awful lot of activity out there in the marketplace and it's not just compared to, to 2020. So mm. investor confidence really has come back and it, it, it's it's across all sectors as well now, whereas at the start of the year was kind of limited to, to more industrial. We're seeing a lot more activity in, in retail and office as well. And I've been banging on about retail having a good year all year. So thankfully it's, it's starting to happen, which is um, <laughs> it's good for me personally <laughs> that I've been yes. some, somewhat accurate, but it's great for the market. It's great for, for, for the sector as well to really get a shot in the arm. It's obviously been one that has struggled quite considerably pre-COVID, of course, but also during COVID as well. So it's good to see some momentum in that sector. And I suppose this comes from that um, investors have been sitting and adopting that wait and see approach, uh, I guess, during the past 18 months. And now we've seen that build up and that pent up demand coming back into the market saying, all right, we've seen what's happened now. Um, the sort of light at the end of the tunnel, we've got Australian borders will reopen to all visa holders, you know, from December the 1st. Um, and that's what's driving it, do you think, with uh, all these transactions? Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think you're, mm. you're dead right using a wait-and-see approach. That's exactly what happened. People were unsure about what was going to happen. So you're naturally not going to suddenly drop $2, 3000000000 $4 billion here, here and there on, on property. You've got to wait and see what materialises. And as we've sort of started to understand a bit more about what COVID brings, there is obviously no solution to it, but we're understanding what it means. Mm. Investors have started to make to make a few more decisions. Um on uh, where they're going to invest and what they what they're going to invest in as well. But the interesting thing is you can't just go blanket. I'm going to I'm going to buy office retail industrial. You still have to find pockets of outperformance because mm. other than I suppose industrial, no other sectors really. Everything is great. Mm. Some markets are struggling a little bit more. Some types of assets are struggling a bit more. So investors really ha- are having to drill down and look for specific um specific outperformance in some of these sectors. And, and retail is one of, the, one of the best examples of how, how the year's kind of developed. 
because we started the year with a lot of activity in um, neighborhood shopping centers, you know, those, those grocery anchored shopping centers, because naturally people are, we're locked down, we can't travel too far. So we're, we're shopping far more close to home. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot, of, a lot of those neighborhoods uh, can cater to that. But as the year progressed, we started to see more activity in sub-regional um, spaces. So we know people are leaving their capital cities, uh, well, according to some reports in their droves to more regional locations. So obviously yeah. investors are following that trend and, and looking at, sub-regional assets in those in those locations. So again, we saw slightly bigger transactions. And then towards the end of the year, we're starting to see a lot more activity in the in the bigger um, retail space, your regionals, your supers and your majors. We're starting to see those start to transact. So it really has been this kind of, this ramp up in, in, in size of the retail sector as well as um, as well as activity. And again, it's it's great to see. And there's obviously a number, uh, a number of reasons for that. Neighborhoods have just been performing great. Sub-regionals haven't been great. So you get a probably get a bit of a discount to book value hmm. and similar to the large shopping centers. I know we, we see reports that these centers are trading on their book value in their, in their June 21 book value. But if you look at some of them, if you look at their book values in 2019, you know, just before COVID started, they are trading at quite a significant discount. And I think hmm. investors are definitely trying to take advantage of that. And that's the thing. I uh, We looked at retail sector, uh, the retail sector pre-COVID, and um, you know, it was facing the headwinds of e-commerce and and those things. And But now we've seen in the past few months, I think the biggest deal we had so far, which was that uh, landmark AMP CBUS Uni, uh, Uni Super deal mm. um, for the two regional malls over, you know, worth over $2 billion. Yes. Mm. Well, exactly. And that, again, it just shows that that's the other part of retail that's always been interesting over the last few years. The mm. good is is still good. Mm. The bad is just, you know, getting worse. Mm. But there are these these quality assets out there that don't trade very often as well. So when you can get your hands on some of these trophy and marquee assets, investors are willing to pay up for them too. Mm. And I think that, again, that's something I think we're going to continue continue to see. Um, and be that just a, because of a pricing differential, they may have got them a discount book value. I've, I've got no idea. I'm not sure what the breakout in price is. Mm. But again, it's retail is it's kind of similar to how people talked about the office CBD, the CBD office market when COVID started. Oh, is the is the CBD office dead? Our oh, big shopping centers dead? No, of course not. Mm. They just need a bit of a change, a bit of a ramp up. But they're still quality assets, and I think there'll always be investor appetite for these types of assets. And the numbers just show that this year as well, which is again, it's um it's great to see. I think turning to that, you look at the retail performance, so sorry, the performances of uh, malls or shopping centres, we call them here. Um, it's, we're mirroring the, the, what we were seeing in the US. I think Simon Property Group came out with figures uh, with their earnings results are bouncing up. So you've got here Westfield centres. Uh, you've seen the foot traffic increase, the retail sales. Uh, from my perspective, I think, I've been locked down for too long, so I need to get out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, to get out and see people and get some yes. normalcy again, isn't it? And that's probably where we're seeing, <laughs> I think, a lot of people. Are, and also, um, we're all cashed up right now. We haven't been spending that money. So we're going back to the shopping centers to spend money, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's mm. that's exactly it. I mean, that happened. We saw that during during COVID as well and other forms. We saw a lot of, because of this, some government, some stimulus packages, mm. obviously JobKeeper, JobSeeker, but also home improvement packages too. That had a big boost in um, on large former retailers. You know, people suddenly had all these home uh, owner grants from the government, so they go out and buy new furniture, new fridges, or whatever. So that really boosted them. Mm-hmm. And now, again, that we can come out of this, and like you said, people still have 
I'd say money to burn, but mm. we haven't gone traveling overseas enough. So there is still money available for, for people that have been able to keep their jobs, hopefully, um, mm. throughout this thing. So you come to the city and you see so much activity in, in the malls. And it's a perfect time of year to come out of this, right? We've got, well, we've got Black Friday sales on at the moment. Yes. We'll have Christmas sales on at the moment. Yes. The silly season, as I'm sure you're aware, is upon us. So we've had Melbourne <laughs> Cup. Everybody was out for that. City was booming. And yes. of course, we're going to have a lot of Christmas shopping as well. Mm. And yeah, it's this whole revenge spending. It's not just investors that that, are, that do revenge spending as well. It's it's also us consumers. So I mm. think you're right. There does seem to be. It's just a lot happening. It's good to see this kind of activity out there. And again, if you, it's it's classic investment. You buy at the bottom and you you sell at the top. So I think a lot of investors are thinking, well, retail's kind of it's at the bottom or it's starting starting to come out of the bottom. Mm. Let's get in there and pick up some of these malls that are going to experience some some cracking turnover events. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Now I, I looked into the. RCA statistics that you've got in your report and you show that for the first time in RCA records that the industrial sector has outstripped the office market for the in the first three quarters of the year. Yes, I think mm. technically it did it last year as well. Once we played around with some, we moved some deals that um, mm. weren't closed, but it's, yeah, it's the same. It's the same thing. It just doesn't happen mm. ever very often. And <laughs> I don't know if industrial will pep office to be the number one sector at the end of the year. It's, it gets entirely possible. And it's it just shows how much appetite there is for uh, there is for industrial um, assets mm. at the moment. And I like, you know, throughout the year I've gone, well, are we peaking? Are we close to the peak? And then bang, somebody drops another $2 billion on a portfolio. And it's like, okay, well, obviously not peaking. And then, you, <laughs> then again, you think, oh, there's a little bit, you know, we, we must start this. You must be coming towards the top of the markets. It's going to slow down. No, no, there's another one, another billion dollars. Like, okay, well, I'm just, going, mm. I'm just going to stop trying to predict that because there's so much activity in that space. It's what everybody wants to buy. And again, it's, it's fascinating to see, um, to see what's happening. And I, I don't think it's going to slow down anytime soon. It, it certainly seems to be continuing. Yeah. And what's that doing for uh, on the side of, uh, sorry, of doing for yields and valuations for, for industrial? Oh, yeah. I mean, I have a chart where we just I just plot um, logistics and warehouse yields and compare that to office and retail. And yep. the, the sharp decline that you're seeing in industrial is, it's, yeah, it's quite, it's, it's, it's extraordinary how much they've declined. I mean, even, you know, sort of two years ago, we're looking at an average of sort of 6% in our series and it's down to fives. It's yep. just, it's just great guns. And if you look, even compared back to 2015, you're talking eights, seven and a half to eights. And again, now we're, we're around fives and it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's expensive stuff. Um, but people are willing to pay for it because such is, such is the demand for it. Mm. And it's not just in Australia. It's also, a, it's a global thing. There's so much appetite for, for industrial assets. Um, and yeah, it's hard to see where those prices are going to go. They can't, mm. you assume, sorry, they can't continue to fall at this kind of rate. There'll be a stopping mm. point at some point. But again, like I said, there's so many deals out there that are, even our database that are waiting to close. And I know there's a lot of off-market transactions still mm -hmm. waiting to be announced. There's, there, there doesn't seem to be any kind of shortage of appetite and any slowing down in the sector. So it's fascinating to watch. It really is. And um, we, I talk, I talk about it all the time, just looking at, the market share of the industrial space. Yes, the long-term average for industrial in our in our database, uh, it's around twenty-three percent of of all transactions for industrial. But in the COVID era, so twenty twenty onwards, it's forty-two percent. That's almost half. Yeah. Yeah, and it, <laughs> it's not just eating into retail; it's taken big chunks of the office sector as well. And it's it's just it's fascinating. One mm. of the um, I mean, that's that's obviously what happens to to property. You. It, industrial 15 years ago wasn't considered that much of an institutional asset class. It was more, more private 
wise mm. and, and a couple of institutions. But now there's so much activity from institutions and it really, it really plays out in our numbers as well. Because what we mm. saw, so in 2015, 16, 17, 18, for example, um, single asset transactions account for about 90% of the market. Yeah. Whereas portfolios and entity counted for, you know, 8 to 10% of the market. Mm. But this year, it's almost a 50-50 split because wow. there's so many big portfolios being bought up. And that's just because I always say the best way to build scale is to not build scale, it's to buy scale. And it's just <laughs> easy to pick up 40 assets, 40 industrial sheds in one go mm. as opposed to building them. So we're seeing so many institutions just pile big money into picking up these massive portfolios, which again is driving yields down quite sharply because there's such a competitive process for these assets that really is just driving driving prices up and obviously consequently yields down. And it's uh, It's... It's definitely a, a very extended purple patch that the industrial sector is going through. And so looking at all these institutions and uh, all these investors targeting the markets, uh, the industrial markets, and obviously there's, an, uh, there's only ever going to be one buyer and the rest, uh, you know, miss out. But how much of unsatisfied capital is out there? The people who miss, sorry, the investors who miss out and then have to move on to a different, uh, you know, different asset that they'll have to look at. Do you have a figure on that? I don't have underbidder analysis, no. Yeah. I don't have that kind of um, uh, those kinds of figures. But yeah. I mean, you've got to imagine there's there's quite a few buyers that that do miss out yeah. on some of these portfolios, and they do jump onto the next one. Yeah. Um, if there's just yeah, there's just so much activity out there, and there's so much appetite for the industrial space. I pretty it'd be quite hard to actually measure that. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd have to speak to some brokers. And I have heard rumours that there were you know up for the milestone portfolio twenty, thirty, forty, fifty underbidders for that. Wow. I mean, that's okay. just, you know, even if even if it's mm. the low side of that number that I've heard, that's an awful lot of underbidders and that's a lot of capital mm. flying around out there trying to find trying to find a place. And mm. if you look at just the breakout of who's actually buying it, particularly offshore, yes. they're basically only looking, or sorry, this year they've pretty much predominantly looked at industrial space. Mm. The biggest deals, obviously, GIC and, and ESR picking up milestone. Mm. But the other ones, is so, there's just so much activity in the, in the industrial space and cross-border is not ta- targeting retail pretty mm. much whatsoever. So it means they're focused on two asset classes, office and industrial. And that's mm. a lot of capital just yes. seeking those two asset classes. So there's, yeah, there's just so many, so many buyers out there looking for it. Domestic's a bit more interesting. It's a bit more evenly split. Um, the mm. domestic markets, it's obviously still slightly more um, industrial focus. But there's still a healthy appetite for offices and a healthy appetite for retail. But those yeah. uh, those, in, those off, offshore capital don't seem to be looking at retail at all at the moment. Now you're saying they don't. The offshore players, you, you know, talked about targeting retail. But in terms of geography, what where are they looking at? Uh, in cities, in suburbs, in you know metro areas, where, and where are the domestic players looking at? Yeah, so I did a I did a little bit of analysis on this, um, looking at the change to pre-COVID average investment. So again, that five-year period, the 2015 to 2019. Mm. What I noticed is that domestic investors have actually increased their allocation to the rest of Australia, so outside of Sydney and Melbourne in, in this example, by about mm-hmm. 20%, whereas okay. they've decreased their allocation to Sydney and Melbourne by around you know, 10 15%. For cross-border, complete opposite. Right. The rest of yep. Australia, had, their allocation has decreased by about 20% to pre-COVID averages. Whereas they've increased their allocation of Sydney and Melbourne by about ten to fifteen percent, so almost a mirror image for uh, compared to domestic investors. Mm. So it's quite an interesting. It's quite an interesting one. I guess it kind of makes sense for cross-border investors in particular because it's hard to to get here to to see assets and to understand the market dynamics and the demographics and all that. Mm-hmm. So going to a regional area, you're going to struggle a little bit. 
that you're going to be unsure on where you're going and what you're looking at. Whereas you know, you know, a, a premium office in Sydney and Melbourne, you know what it is. You don't, you know, you just go yes. the, you just go yeah. keep the tires, and you know, you know what you're going to get. Yeah. But looking at a sub-regional asset, say in Wollongong or Newcastle, you're going to be a bit skittish about that because you can't actually physically get there unless you have a unless you have a local partner, a local team. Yeah. Yeah. So domestic investors, obviously, they can get out and see that, and there's a lot of opportunities to be had in regional locations, particularly in that retail space, as the population. Um, move to those areas. So they're happier to, to invest outside of, of CBDs. And again, a lot of investors are chasing yields at the moment and obviously in regional areas, yields are, yields are slightly higher. Mm. To that point as well in the retail, another fascinating thing I came, up, came across the other day is that cross-border investors, when they, enter, when they do buy retail, mm. they almost, it was almost solely just 100% themselves. So um, a J- JV share of cross-border retail acquisitions over the last sort of seven or eight years was about Two or three percent, so very limited JV deals. Twenty twenty one, it sits at eighty percent. Oh, sorry, right. 71 percent. So seventy one percent of any retail deal involving a cross border player is a JV, mm-hmm. which again kind of makes sense because you need someone who knows the market, who understands the asset, and can actually actively manage it when when the offshore party obviously can't come here. So mm. I think we might see a bit more of that as well in in the near, in, in the future. I mean, that mm. that trend has changed very very quickly. Literally, in the space of eighteen months, it's gone from naught to seventy. Yeah, I suppose that gives the opportunity to also the local local landlords or the local investor that holds the property to free up capital to uh, chase other opportunities too. Absolutely, no, definitely mm. right. I mean, some of these, some I mean, these shopping centres, they're big, they're big chunks of change. Again, it speaks to how people have a lot more faith in the retail sector than perhaps is reported in the media because yeah. even sub-regional assets, they're going at 150 to $200 million. So they're not small assets. So you don't just take a little, you don't just take a punt on something that size. I obviously <laughs> think it, it will work. And yes, by selling down 50% of that, then again, you can uh, deploy capital elsewhere, which is what we're seeing a lot of. And, you know, it's um, where that capital is going is quite interesting these days, particularly in the alternative sectors, which seem to be attracting an awful lot of investment at the moment. Yeah, the I think looking at it, we've got data centers, childcare, pubs, uh, social infrastructure. Uh, everything is is happening right now. They're all competing for that uh, investor attention. Absolutely. I mean, I think mm. in, in twenty twenty, we registered a record year for for data centers, student mm. accommodation, service mm. centers, and medical offices. So far in twenty twenty, we have logged record years for childcare, pubs, yeah. self storage, and medical offices. And don't forget service centres, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, there's mm. so much activity in that in that smaller end of town, in that uh, mm. not to sort of thirty million dollar range, and and it's not just people chasing yield. I hear that a lot, saying, "Oh, you're moving up the risk curve by investing in these assets." And so like, that's not actually necessarily the case, because some of these, you just look at childcare assets; they're going for as low as three percent. Wow, I mean, these are these are low. These are um, some very low yields. But yeah. the, the kind of th- the thing is, whilst we have a little bit more confidence about or we have a little bit more understanding about what COVID has done and what it is doing. And we have these various roadmaps that are bringing us out of it. It's never fully going to go away, of course. And there's still uncertainty around the economic future for, well, not just Australia, but the rest of the globe. And if you look at a lot of these alternative asset classes like self-storage and childcare and even car dealerships, they mm. have very long leases, you know, 10 to 15 year leases in place with a 5% annual review. So this is, kind of coming back to the, the crux of a property investment, you're after that income return. And if mm. you have a, a if you have an asset that gives you a you know a 10 year steady cash flow, that's perfect in a time of uncertainty because you know exactly what you're going to get. So I think that's another reason why we're seeing a lot of activity in that um in that alternative space. 
The other reason, of course, is there's no point in putting your money in the bank at the moment with interest rates so low. So no, there if, you, if you have a spare 30 odd million, you know, why not pick yourself up a, a funeral home or a cemetery, which apparently are very, very popular these days. <laughs> I don't quite understand how they work as businesses. I've never really looked into it too much, but apparently they're, they're good businesses and they're extremely popular at the moment. But that's, I, I, you touch upon that and it's quite interesting. I think I'm just thinking about, um, obviously, we were saying now industrial so you know institutionalized and these are the alternative sets the alternative sectors booming um but they these long leases leases that are, are coming with these assets are sort of similar characteristics to what industrial um but obviously they're on us you know 30 mil ish or 50 mil whereas if you want to spend industrial you're going to compete with the big institutions and spend big money Absolutely. And that, that's kind mm. of how every property sector starts off. Really. It starts mm. as a little bit small, a little bit niche. I mean, the property sector is still considered niche by many, many mm. investors. So within the property sector, you have niche sectors as well. And they will they will naturally develop over time. I mean, pubs is always an interesting one because yeah. it's kind of like the alternative stalwart. It's always considered alter alternative, but it regularly tops a billion dollars. I guess it's not big when you're comparing it to office and retail, but it's an industrial, but it's always there. It's always a, a, a big type of alternative sector. And even this year, you know, Charter Hall picking up ALE, or apparently mm. should pick up ALE for whatever it was, $1.7 billion. Mm. That more than doubles um, the total volumes. There's, there's just so much activity and so many institutions looking at these alternative spaces because there's, there's just so much promise in these kinds of sectors. Healthcare obviously is going to, going to continue to boom. We're all getting older. We all need more, more places um, yes. To go, having having recently spent some time in a hospital, I can definitely test to. <laughs> the more the merrier, the more we have, the better. Yes. Um, same for childcare. I mean, these assets they start off as alternative, but they start to they start to develop, and then they start to be talked of as a bit more core, mm -hmm. similar to industrial used to be. So I suppose similar to hotels used to be, and then you have ones like um senior housing. That's definitely. Yes. I mean, we still consider it slightly alternative, but. Across the rest of the world, it's it's not alternative, and then of course you have multifamily or built to rent. Again, yes, considered alternative here, but it's the largest investor investment market in the US. Mm. More investors hold multifamily than any other sector. Mm. So, it's really you know it's each to their own, of course, as to what you consider alternative. Mm. Um, but the, it, there's just more people coming into the sector, more institutions coming into that that space, and of course when that happens, you generally see some prices increase as more activity. I mean that's just supply and demand, really. Yeah, absolutely. I think with looking at alternative sector, it's just we're racking our brain to think what other things that um, we can package up and sell. <laughs> what next? Okay, great. Let's take a short break. Real Capital Analytics is the authority on property deals, the players and the trends that drive the commercial real estate investment markets. Having recorded over $20 trillion of commercial transactions, data is at the forefront of RCA's business. One thing I noticed also um, in the report, Ben, is the deal tiers. Um, 2020 was mainly driven by deals in the $100 million to $250 million bracket. Oh, you mean 2021? Yeah, so far this year. Yes, 2021, sorry. You're still living in the past now. So I know, you haven't it's been home for a while. That's true. <laughs> All the days are blurring together. <laughs> I need to get out. <laughs> well, apart from the year, you're dead right mm. there. It's mm. ab absolutely. We are seeing a big... A big increase in that 100 to 250 and also 10 to 100 million. And okay. a lot of that is being driven by, again, by retail having this stellar year for, for, for the sector. Mm. The 10 to 100, that's where your, your neighborhood centers are trading, particularly mm. around the 50 million. Mm. And then the 100 to 250, that's where a lot of these sub-regionals are trading as well. Obviously, it's, just, it's not only retail driving those sectors, but it is, that's the biggest increase we've seen is in 
in uh, in the retail side. I think about almost twenty of those uh, twenty of those transactions were retail, mm. um, one hundred to, to two hundred and fifty, and I think last year there was basically none from retail. Wow. So it definitely is a it is a it is a big driver. The other um, kind of fascinating. Um, thing about the the average uh, the the deal tier breakout that, that we have been looking at, so yes. we collect deals down to to a million dollars, mm. and generally the the deal bracket one to six million dollars it's been declining year on year, kind of the last four or five years, but so far this year we've seen a jump of about thirty percent. Okay, big reason for that is again what we talked about before all these alternative assets. So it could definitely so the increase can can be partially attributed to I don't know, just the, the growing appetite of these alternative assets. And I noticed that the average price for alternatives was about nine point eight million. Hmm. So a lot of them fall in this ten to this one to ten million dollar bracket. So that's a very interesting change on um, on previous years really. And we talked about it before, and we're still trying to come to terms with what's actually what has COVID done. I mean, are these just cyclical changes, or are we seeing some some structural changes? That kind of might be a bit of a structural change that we're seeing far more activity, far more um, appetite for alternative assets. It's hard to kind of tell at the moment as to see whether this is just a natural extension of a trend being accelerated by by COVID that suddenly everybody wants more um, more alternative assets, or if this is really a structural change in, in the sector. Hmm. And in that bracket to the one to six million, I suppose if you had the money and it was sitting in a bank, you're not earning much interest on it. So you you might as well look Absolutely. at property. Mm. That's exactly it. I mean, cash rates being as low as they are these days, there's no point in holding cash. So if you do have a spare twenty five to thirty million, if you know if you do, Nelson, please let me know. <laughs> um, it seems to be that investors are looking at that space because it's hard mm. to pick up retail office and industrial these days in that in that bracket. I think mm. almost every other every other week I'm reading something about an auction where your people are buying hungry jacks and KFCs yes. and all yes. kinds of things. I mean, they really are transacting, and again, they're not they're not people moving up the up the up the risk curve, up the yield curve, because they're still quite they're quite tight yields. But mm. yeah, there's just so much appetite for for. Property. And I suppose those ones again come with that long lease, don't they? That hungry jacks and KFC and McDonald's. Yeah. Mm. Exactly, and there—I mean—it comes back to the crux of property. You buy it for that nice, steady, stable income stream. And again, I keep saying, you know, it, it, we are still in uncertain times. We don't know mm. exactly what's going to happen. Um, so, if you have a, a long lease of ten years, fantastic. Can't, mm. Hopefully, you can't go too wrong with that. So, again, that's what, that's just seems to be what investors are doing at the moment. So, it's a lot of fun at the moment, isn't it? Looking at what's who's putting their money where and what kind of random assets you can pick up these days. I think I covered thirteen asset classes the other day in a presentation and. Wow. <laughs> really stretched, I can tell you. <laughs> it used to be just, you know, office, industrial, retail, and yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. The odd hotel, and, yeah. Yes, and yeah, a hotel. That's it. actually, uh, I wanted to touch upon that now that you've reminded me. The borders are opening on, uh, well, borders are open, but from December the 1st, we're wel- welcoming all the international students. So I suppose that's a great thing for the uh, student accommodation sector. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, you know, we're doing the uh, travel lanes, vaccinated travel lanes with the other countries. That will bode well for the hotel sector, which has seen 18 months of just uncertainty. Absolutely. Mm. It's, I, hadn't, I haven't talked too much about hotels in the first mm. half of the year because there was not a lot to say that wasn't, that wasn't negative. Mm. Um, but there's been a fantastic surge in the last, last quarter, last few months. Mm-hmm. Um, volumes are they've, they've outstripped 2020, which is great as you'd expect now. Yes. Um, they're coming close to sort of 2019, 2018 levels, which is great. They'll probably, to be honest, they'll probably surpass them. Wow. They'll probably end up with a year close to 
2016, 2015 was a record year at around mm-hmm. four and a bit billion. 2016 is around three and a half. We might come close to that if deals get settled by the end of the year. Even if they don't, there are deals in DD and, you know, deals that have exchanges that's waiting to settle. And it's great to see the, the activity in that space. And again, it's investors picking up on this idea of revenge spending. Lots of travel lands are opening and people do want to, Still want to come to Australia, of course. Yes. Um, so they're gonna they're definitely taking advantage of that because again, you can pick these 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 assets up for, for less than you would have had to pay two, three, four, five years ago. Mm. Um Sofitel went with in Sydney, for example, went um went recently. It's a cracking asset. Mm. Um I haven't I'm not entirely sure what the price was to book value, but either way it's a good asset and yeah, investors are showing a lot of faith in the in the tourism sector. Which again, mm. I think is it's great for the it's great for the economy as, as a whole as well that we're seeing more confidence. Confidence will come from if confidence builds in every sector across the entire country, then it, people will start to do stuff, and and it should keep the economy going relatively mm. well over time. And you know, it's 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 really good that um that hotels are coming coming back to the forefront of investor minds. And I know you for one are definitely going to go travelling as soon as you can. And, and same here, it'd be nice to get outside of the four walls <laughs> of home and experience something a little bit different. Uh, I, I love Melbourne, but I I am looking forward to travelling and seeing something different. <laughs> After 18 yeah. months. <laughs> Absolutely. Even if it's just regional. I mean, regional hotels have been doing fantastically well mm. over, the, over over COVID. But even even then, they're, you know, they're, they're relying wholly on domestic uh, domestic um, uh, tourists. So opening opening back up to the international market is, is fantastic. It brings money in. It keeps jobs ticking over as well, which is always good for, for the retail sector as well. Mm, so absolutely. It's a lot, there's a lot more positivity in, in the market these days now that we're slowly coming out of this thing, which is it's great to see. So I, and I think um, I'm thinking about the things you talk about for capital, all this, you know, unsatisfied capital, looking at properties and uh, all the prices going up also and pushing up the valuations. Are there any sectors now in the in the market where you can buy the assets for below value, you know, be, sorry, below replacement costs? Poor. I'm sure there are mm. in, I mean, you'd have to pick your, pick your asset and pick your market. Mm. Um, I'm sure there are places, but it's like I was saying before, you, investors can't just chop and change between sectors anymore because they're all kind of yielding around that four, four to four and a half. Yeah. That's why we're seeing a lot of them jumping to alternatives as well to, to look at different uh, different yields. But it's also moving to different different regions as well mm. um, to, to really look for these assets. So top of my head, I'm not entirely sure mm. if there are places you can pick up assets at below replacement costs. Mm. I'm sure there are. Um, and I guess that's why we're starting to we see a lot more activity in in regional areas as well. Yes, because that's definitely a place you can pick them up. Some of, I mean, a great example is is retail, because um, CBD retail for Brisbane, Melbourne, and Sydney they're basically still down mm. on um twenty twenty, uh, on uh, twenty seventeen twenty nineteen averages, but regional retail is up. 50% Melbourne, uh, sorry, regional Victoria, 50% regional Queensland, 100% New South Wales mm. as investors move out to the more uh, to those regional areas. Mm. And so now we're looking at, uh, we'll touch upon offices. It, it, it was one of those things that also one of the sectors that people talked about and there was a lot of doom and gloom uh, mm. during COVID that, you know, work from home will uh, eliminate the need to go into offices. And so I, I suppose a lot of investors were scared off um, and then we saw suburban uh, offices become the flavor of the month. What's happening now? Yeah, that's really mm. picked up. Um, again, I think this is one of those cyclical trends that we're, we're seeing 
that before COVID, there seemed to be a lot more appetite for suburban offices. Mm-hmm. Um, I know Sydney City Council, for example, has really been pushing their 30-minute city ID, you know, live, work, be serviced within 30 minutes of your home. Mm-hmm. Um, and investors were tapping into that. You know, a lot of offices were trading in Parramatta and Macquarie Park. Um, and I think COVID really has accelerated that trend. I mean, I don't know how long your commute has been over COVID, but mine's been about 35 seconds. So, it's, <laughs> you know, you really get used to no commute. Yeah. Like investors are really uh, are tapping into that. Um, so, again, if we look at pre-COVID averages for suburban markets, they're well ahead of mm. 2021 is well ahead of five-year averages, mm. whereas the CBD is still down on five-year averages. Mm-hmm. And suburban markets have jumped, you know, 140, 150% compared to 2020, whereas the wow. CBD is still, still 50% up. Now, mm. we do know that CBD assets tend to take a little bit longer to, uh, to settle for those mm-hmm. deals to be, to be done. So, I mean, that's, that is one explanation. Um, and most office transactions do settle in Q4. So Q4, you'd normally see a, be a big ramp up. Mm-hmm. But even if that did happen, um, I think on average, Q4 accounts for 36% of office transactions. We would need about $9 billion. If that ha- So if that happens, that's about $9 billion. Mm-hmm. And, that mean- and we're still well short of 2019 numbers. And that's mm-hmm. almost, almost purely driven by CBD offices because they're the larger ones. So I, I still think there's, there's not – the appetite for suburban is slightly higher than the appetite for CBD offices at the moment. But mm-hmm. there's no way the office sector is dead in CBD. That's just mm. – I just don't. I just don't think that's true. There's still so much activity, and there still are big deals being, being done all, mm. all, all across the world, really. Yes, and new developments are still being planned, and and you know, lodged mm-hmm. in development applications all over the place too for CBD office towers. Exactly. I mean, MPS mm. picked up a 1.2 billion dollar office development in, in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. The other day, I mean, you're not going to do that if you think the office sector doesn't have a, doesn't have a future. It, Absolutely, it, it definitely has a future. Things might need to change up a little bit. I mean, that's just normal. That's a standard evolution. Mm. And again, it's a trend that was already kind of happening, you know, across the world that there was a lot more working from home and stuff. COVID has accelerated that naturally, and I think there will be a bit of a shake up here and there. But there's still a, there's still a place for CB offices, most definitely. Yeah, I, I, I was uh, tuning into an investment briefing with uh, a global fund manager and that they mentioned that, um, yeah, that, 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 that a report that they had, which found that um, even if you allow one office worker to work from home once a week, that um, although they said that might sound like a 20% reduction in office based requirement, but the net mm. reduction in office based demand is actually zero. So that's negligible. Um, yeah, I mm. think, yeah, I think that's right. And we did some modeling similar to that. And mm. The other thing, of course, is it's rare that a, that an office tenant will take, well, can a, can cater to 100% of their workforce on any given day. Mm-hmm. That's that's a lot of space because people have any, people are on a holiday, people are sick, people are you know, days off, people are in sales, so they're out, they're working, they're working outside the office or they're at conferences and stuff. You don't need to be able to account for 100% of your your employees every day. Mm. So, if your office can account for you know 60 to 70%, that that will that will suffice on any given day. Mm. So I, it's hard to see these massive reductions in footprints that people are, people yes. are talking about. Mm. The other thing, of course, is some, you know, you can do that with some sectors and some industries, but other industries, you need all that collaboration. You need people to come to work every day. So they're not necessarily going to go into change. And I do worry about, you know, the younger generations, of course, as well, because I'm sure when you started your career, you were the same as me, that you immerse yourself in, in these older professionals in an office space and you hear all these things and you talk to all these people and you, yes. you're just sort of surrounded by this conversation and you can't do that from home. You no. don't have these, these water cooler moments. So <laughs> we need all that, particularly if, you know, companies want to develop their talent for the future of their 
mm. their business. You need to bring people back to the office. People need to come come here. So again, I think I think the the death, death of the office sector was definitely exaggerated in, in my opinion. I don't think it's I don't think it's happening. Just a change. That's all. Yeah, I agree. I um, well, I have got a little story to tell. I tuned you know uh, tuned into a, a, well, I was invited into a luncheon uh, for a, a, a investment. Uh, um, sort of presentation and because of COVID it was done remotely on Zoom but mm. they organized a catering company to deliver the lunch to my house so I could tune in I, I and you know I have to tell you it was very weird watching other people eat on Zoom whilst <laughs> try- I, I can imagine it was very distracting <laughs> it was very distracting I just I, I want to go back to a normal conference where I meet oh. someone at a at, yeah. a, at, a, at, a, at a conference. I just, I don't want to watch someone eat again in, in, in Zoom. <laughs> I, I agree. It's hard to engage in small talk then when you've got 100 people listening to you as well and you're looking at them. And, I, I, and they, they have, have to put the mute button on because otherwise I hear the crunching. So oh, anyway. It just doesn't, yeah, particularly if people got headsets on. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's just, yeah. I think I have a virtual wine tasting coming up soon. And whilst I, I think it's fantastic that, I, that we can still organize things like this, Mm. people will send me wine and I get to drink it and we will talk about it. It's fantastic. But it's just, obviously it's not the same as, as doing these things in person. And no, again, you can't just have a, a, a that water cooler moment where you just have a quick chat with someone and learn about themselves as a person, but also what they do in, in a business. Yes. So, and I think that's, that's just needed. We are at our core. We are a society. That's what we as human beings are. Mm. You can't do that. Just talking into a microphone on a screen all yes. day, every day. You need human interaction and connection. Mm, yeah, I, absolutely. Real Capital Analytics is the authority on property deals, the players and the trends that drive the commercial real estate investment markets. Having recorded over $20 trillion of commercial transactions, data is at the forefront of RCA's business. Now, I, I suppose we're getting close to that part, well, well looking at it and we're now 20 uh, you know and almost end of november mm. so what trends are we going to see emerge next year more <sighs> of the same or hard. Who knows? Always hard. yeah <laughs> who, who knows i mean it's a it's a tricky one mm. um based on what we're seeing this year it's hard not to see industrial continue to to boom mm. continue to to see record volumes um, it just depends when investors decide pricing has got too much and they, they stop investing heavily in the sector. Again, just looking at our numbers and what mm. we know has to settle. It's hard to see that slowing down anytime soon. Similar thing for pricing. Interest rates stay where they are. Demand stays where it is. It's hard to see any sector seeing a lot of yield expansion. Mm. Um, we do have some sectors like such as regional shopping centers where the yields are kind of flat. Given the appetite that we're starting to see in those sectors, it'd be interesting to see what happens with those yields and in some of those um, more out of favor retail mm-hmm. classes that are starting to pick up. I'm very interested to see how some of the pricing develops over next year. Mm. Um, but I, I do expect to see continued appetite for retail. Again, just looking at what we have in our pipeline, mm. there's going to be there's going to be some activity in the retail space. Um, and the office one will be interesting as well because we, like I said, a lot of, Offices do get done, deals do get done in Q4. Mm-hmm. Given that due diligence has been taking a little bit longer for, for CBD office assets in particular, they might start to push over and fall over into, into Q1. Mm. So I think office will, office will be a bit of a strange one over the next, for, uh, for the next 12 months as well. I think where you, you, you do readjust. Exactly, whilst it readjusts. Mm. Um, and again, I, I still think there's, there's, there's phenomenal appetite out there for, for quality assets, no matter what the sector. Mm. Quality assets will always attract a lot of bidders, quality bidders, and that will always see, see prices kind of, um, hover either around their book values or, or um, push pricing up. 
Mm. The fascinating thing for me is what's going to happen to that alternative space. Is this a bit of a blip yes. or is this a big change? Is this a big sector change, a big structural change? Um, particularly in that healthcare space, because I mean, Dexa started off with a healthcare fund of what, 900 odd million or something at started. Yes. I think it's got to, to 2 billion this year. Mm-hmm. And they picked up a, what, a big chunk of Oz Unity, 7% or something like that. So they're definitely mm-hmm. a big insta that's heavily invested into that hey. into that sector. And I mean, Charter Hall has been doing it for a couple of years as well. You know, Centuria, there's a lot of activity in that space. Um, and I definitely think COVID's kind of accelerated that as well because it is a health crisis with financial implications. It's not a financial <laughs> crisis. It was a health crisis. Mm. So picking up healthcare assets is obviously, um, uh, well, can't necessarily be a bad idea. Mm. Um, but also that R&D space too. That's another little alternative sector that we don't talk too much about is that yeah. the research and development side. Um, again, Dex has picked up a couple of those down in Monash, the Monash complex down in... Um, in Melbourne, mm. we know Macquarie Park obviously builds itself as a bit of a life science hub and we know the appetite for life sciences. And again, it's all around that, that R&D side. So I expect we'll see a lot more of um, that happen as well, mm. a lot more activity in that space as well. But, you know, as we know, it's very hard to predict anything these days. And mm. I certainly didn't predict that I'd spend nine months working from home. I wouldn't have predicted that two years ago. So absolutely, a, it, is, it is a tricky one, but I'm sure one thing you can guarantee is that investors will always be on the lookout for for some deals, no mm. matter what, what type of climate we're in. Well, the, the, I think um, on the healthcare, uh, healthcare space, um, Australian Unity this week spent 90-something million on mm. three aged care assets on a leaseback in Queensland. So that space is, sorry, that sector's not going anywhere. It's the ageing Australians, you know, as we get older. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it's a, it's, it is an interesting one, particularly for property people. Mm-hmm. I mean, Aware Super earlier in the year picked up a 25% share in a Lend-Lease senior housing portfolio. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to see a bit more of that where investors pick up chunks in businesses because they don't mm-hmm. want to run them themselves because they don't have the expertise in that in that sector. So I think we'll see some partner up in some of these more alternative healthcare spaces whilst they learn the business and get more comfortable with it and then, I don't know, make bigger splashes five, 10 years from now or whatever. Mm. But it certainly is one of those sectors that's I can only see it growing. In healthcare, we always need healthcare. We're all, we're all living longer, and apparently, we're all living longer. And I, it's just a space that can only really grow, I suppose, from here. And I've been interested to see which investors move in there. It's traditionally been more of a private, private space, but again, now we're seeing far more institutions get get in the game. Mm. And what about uh, pubs? Are there any left to buy, or they spent? <laughs> have they bought them all? <laughs> Charter Hall, if they do close on ALU, would be what, the largest pub owner in the world, or large, sorry, in Australia, or the largest pub landlord in Australia. Mm. Um, they've got a lot, haven't they? Yes. It's, uh, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fascinating business. You know, you've, no one's been to a pub in ages, and suddenly Charter Hall's dropping a, almost $2 billion on pubs. But again, the long leases, they're good leases. They're, they're well-performing assets um, before before COVID, so maybe they saw an opportunity to to pick up this at um, I don't know a, a discount. I'm not entirely sure what the what the pricing is because it hasn't hasn't happened yet. But hmm. pubs are good assets. They're on very long very long leases. Um, and again, there's annual rent reviews in there. They're they're less risky because they're triple net lease. So yeah, I can't see similar to student housing in in 2019 when um, yeah. Scape at all picked up Urbanest. It's mm. hard to see that kind of level of transaction happening again because there's just not that left, not mm. that much left. Yeah. Um, ALE were one of the largest, if not the largest. Now Charter Hall's picked them up. So, again, in order to make a splash in, in, in some of these sectors, it's easy just to buy funds, buy buy companies. But there's not that many big pub owners left, really. 
So I don't know how much uh, activity we want to see in that space. But as I said, it's uh, the pub sector is the, that alternative stalwart that's always around, always ticking over a million, a billion dollars a year in, in transactions. So I wouldn't be surprised mm. if next year was very similar. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I suppose another sector which everyone always talks about, but we've seen now the Victorian government uh, pass legislations for um, incentives for the sector, which is built to rent. Mm. Um, as more and more state governments, uh, you know, provide that land tax incentives um, and other tax, you know, systems uh, or change the tax system to accommodate it. What are we going to see there next year? I think we'll see for, uh, further announcements of companies getting into it. There was another one the other day. Was it backed by Macquarie? Um, yes. Another, another company. 500 up million. Up. Yeah, exactly. Mm. To get to get in. And Macquarie, obviously, a, a bit of a... They know they're old hands at this. They've they've seen in the US. They've said they've helped start companies down here before. When it, in in that mm. space, it's again I can only see it as a growing sector. And yes, the the, the tax regimes will help a little bit. We mm. I, know, I remember at CBS we always maintain that if your development did not stack up for tax reasons, you probably need to look at a different <laughs> development because it shouldn't it shouldn't mm. kill a project. But it's just mm. yet another hurdle to overcome. It's another impediment. So as the government start to remove some of these impediments, I think we'll see we'll see more appetite. I can't tell mm. you that it's really dampened a lot of appetite because there just seems to be so much discussion about it. So many players want to get into the space. Um, but it'd be interesting to see if we start to see more of these removals of impediments, if there's a sudden influx of capital, similar to what mm-hmm. we saw in the UK five or six years ago, where it was, a, it was a slow burn, it was a slow increase. And then bang, the government changed some legislation and freed up some uh, cheap debt, for example. And suddenly the, the sector took off. It really did take off. And it coincided mm. with a lot of the openings of these buildings as well, where people could touch and feel them. And suddenly tenants wanted to move in or cluster, customers, as they're supposed to be called, wanted, wanted to move in. And other investors mm. started to look at it and went, and went actually, this is, a pretty, this is a pretty good product. Because arguably it's, I'm not going to say it's bulletproof, nothing is bulletproof. But in, in mm. good times, people need to rent. In bad times, arguably more people need to rent. And when you have mm-hmm. a market like Australia that's so hot at the moment, the resi market, you know, there's 40% increases in residential prices in some suburbs, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. We're going to need more, far more affordable rental accommodation. So I think it's only in the government's interest to, to remove some of these impediments. And again, investors are, are pretty good at seeing seeing uh, new trends and new sectors and pretty good at getting into them. So for me, mm-hmm. the build trend, is only, it's only going to go up and up and up over the next over the next few years. The interesting thing for me is when is that tipping point where it suddenly goes boom? What's what's the trigger that just suddenly goes bang? Massive amount Absolutely. of development. That'll be the fun mm. one. <laughs> it will be. We'll be talking about it in the future podcasts. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I can't wait for it. It's always a good to- topic to talk about. I've been banging on about it, it for five years and now suddenly something's happening. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, yes, the crystal ball period. Um, yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> Thank you very much for uh, joining me today, Ben, on Australian Property Journal's Talking Property Podcast. It was a pleasure having you as a guest. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time, Nelson. I do appreciate it. And I hope you get to go travelling soon. I will. I probably will tell you all about it next time. Absolutely. (laughs) Fantastic. Look forward to it. (laughs) Thank you, Ben.